Hello, hello, everybody. <clears throat> Great to see you this morning and worship with you. My name is Luke, and I'm excited to be here on Baptism Sunday. So we have a number of people who are going to be getting baptized this morning later in the service. We're super excited about that. Baptism, we believe, is a symbol of a life that's been transformed by Jesus Christ, and it's a powerful reminder of the difference that Jesus makes in a person's life. If you are here this morning and you didn't sign up to be baptized, you could still actually get baptized this morning because Pastor Tim is going to share a little bit more about baptism later. And we have all the clothes you would need in the back to get baptized in. We've got a towel. We even have a seat cover for your car. And so keep an open uh, mind, car seat, for your car seat. Keep an open mind as uh, you're worshiping this morning if, if that's something you might want to do a little bit later on in the service. <clears throat> and while we begin uh, with a few passages from the Bible this morning, why don't we start by just asking God to guide us in the Bible reading. Will you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer this morning? Dear God, it's been wonderful to worship you through these songs this morning that we sang and to hear, Lord, just about how you have touched the hearts of a student, touch the heart of a student this morning, God, through camp. And we just ask now that as we read some passages of Scripture, God, that you'd continue to just open our hearts up to how wonderful and amazing you are, Lord. We pray that you'd be honored and glorified as we learn about you, God, and that our lives would be changed for the better because of this time of reading some passages of Scripture. So guide us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I saw a movie a few years ago, and the opening scene has the main character walking through a desolate desert. And as he's walking through the desert, he comes upon a drug deal gone bad. Apparently, two gangs had met up out here in this desert to do some sort of drug deal, but something had gone wrong because everyone, it seemed, was dead. They had had a shootout of some kind. And so the, the movie begins with the, the main character just walking and stumbling upon this scene out in the desert. And as he, as he walks around and kind of examines all the cars and all the people who've all perished, or so he thinks, he, he finally finds a suitcase full of money. And so he finds the suitcase, he looks at it, and he reaches in to take it. And just about then, he is kind of startled by a survivor. Not everyone has died. There's one man near the suitcase who's actually wounded but alive. And this man looks at the main character and he just says one word, water. And the main character, he replies with something like, I don't have any water. And then he takes the money and he leaves. But that evening... As the main character is sitting on his couch at home, you can tell that it's bothering him. You can tell that he just can't shake the thought of this, this stranger, wounded and thirsty, out in the desert. And so finally, he just can't take it anymore. He gets up, he fills a container with water, and he heads out the front door. <clears throat> now, probably none of us have been in that precise situation before. But we have all been in situations 
where we've done something and then later grown to regret it. Where we've said something or done something or thought something and then a little while later we, we realize, you know what? What I did was wrong. And, and you feel kind of a sense of shame about it. Maybe it's been a few minutes since you just said something. Or maybe it's been a, even a few, a few weeks since you did something. Or sometimes it's even years when you reflect back and you go, you know what? What I did was wrong. And you might even describe it as a sense of defilement that you feel because you know that you fell short of what you could have done in a situation, which raises the question, of course, how do we remove that sense of sin, that defilement that we all feel for things we know that were wrong? And one thing the Bible tells us that does not remove that sense of shame and sin that we all feel in our hearts is our Christian traditions. All of us have probably some sort of, of set of Christian traditions that can be extremely helpful for living the Christian life. Unless we think that simply observing our tradition can in some way atone for our past sins. Maybe you have a, a tradition like I do, of giving a certain percentage of your income to the Lord. It's a percentage that you've already settled on, so you don't even have to think about it. And every time you get paid or you sell a property or you come into some money, you already know this part of it I've decided to give to the Lord. And maybe it's a generous percentage. And having a discipline like that, a habit, a tradition, if you will, can be extremely helpful for living the Christian life. Unless we think that because we give so much, so regularly, that somehow we don't have to worry about those pesky sins of the past. That we've given enough that the scales have tipped in our favor and we can block out the sound of guilt and shame from what we've said and done. Maybe you have a, a tradition like most of us do, of, of how you read the Bible. Perhaps you like to read uh, in the morning, maybe, in a certain place. And, and, and perhaps when you're done reading, you even have, like I do, some sort of acronym that you follow to help you, guide you in your prayer. And, of course, uh, a habit, a discipline, a, a tradition of prayer can be extremely helpful in following Jesus. Unless we think that because we faithfully meet with Jesus and follow our habit of prayer time and time again so faithfully, that somehow that discipline of Bible reading and prayer in itself has made, it, has made up for our sins, has, has atoned for the wrong that we've done. Because um, if that's what we think, then the Bible would say that traditions can be so helpful for living the Christian life. But there's no tradition that could ever make up or be enough to cleanse our hearts from sin. That's what we find as we continue reading in the book of Mark this morning. And we'll pick up in 
Mark chapter 7, if you want to read along, we'll put the words on the screen, or you could turn there. And we'll start reading in verse 1. And as we do, listen to how it's not our traditions by themselves that can purify our hearts from sin. It says this, starting in verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? instead of eating their food with defiled hands. So the Pharisees have this tradition of washing their hands before they eat the food from the marketplace. And they ask Jesus, why don't your disciples follow this tradition? Now, the tradition started with something in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there really is a a, a law, commandment from God, that the priests are supposed to wash their hands and feet before they serve in the temple. And so at some point along the line, the religious leaders reasoned, and they said, well, if it's fitting for the priests to wash before they serve at the temple, wouldn't it be fitting for all of us to wash before we go to the temple? And if it's good to wash before you go to the temple, well, then wouldn't it be good just to wash before you even pray? And if you wash before you pray, why not before you even eat? And pretty soon... They had established this vast array of traditions on top of the cleanliness laws pertaining to even food in this case. And it doesn't sound so terribly horrible, but something in their observance of these traditions had gone terribly, horribly wrong. You can already sort of pick up on it right now by the way that they're sort of looking down on Jesus' disciples for not keeping their tradition, even though it's just a tradition. But to them, it had become, we know from historical records, just as important as the Bible itself. So there's already something going wrong there in their, in their judgmental attitude and how they're, they're asking, why aren't your disciples following this tradition? But the problem goes even deeper than that, which is what Jesus will reveal with what he says next. Listen to what he says next as we pick up in verse 6. He says this, <clears throat> he replied, as Jesus answering their question, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And so Jesus says, these Pharisees, and it sounds like many, many of the Jews, who wash before they go to the temple, who wash before they pray, who wash before they eat, who are observing these tedious religious traditions, 
He says their hearts are far from me. And we can only assume that as they washed and washed, that they thought that they were washing themselves to the point that there was nothing separating them from God. That they had washed enough to clear their conscience and their sins away. But Jesus says, your heart is far from me. And how could it not be? How could their hearts not be far from God when they think that all they need to do to make up for their sins is observe an outward, empty, perfunctory tradition? And if they do it enough, and if they're diligent enough, then they're clean. Essentially, they don't need God. Sure, they've done a lot of wrong, but they've also done a lot of right. They've followed the traditions so carefully until they've justified themselves before God, until they're sure that they've done enough to be clean. Because not only did they keep the law, the ceremonial washing for the priests, but they kept so much more above and beyond that. And they created in themselves this self-reliance, this self-righteousness that they have because they think by keeping the tradition, they have nothing to separate them from God. That the outward cleansing has cleansed even their hearts. But Jesus says, if that's your attitude, if that's your opinion of, of outward traditions, that in and of themselves, your disciplined observance of them can make you acceptable and clean in your heart, then not only have you not cleansed your heart from sin, but that self-righteous attitude is multiplying the sins in your heart even more. We know that because sometimes the traditions become so important to us that we're even willing to outright sin in order to keep the tradition that we think is making us pure. That's what we discover as Jesus goes on with his critique of their careful, self-righteous tradition-keeping. We'll pick up reading in verse 8. He says this in verse 8. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is, devoted to God then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition and you, that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. He says they have this tradition that says that they can give to God what they would have otherwise given to support their parents. And even though the Bible says to honor your parents, well, they can get around that, by keeping this tradition that sounds so holy of giving it all to the Lord instead. And so important to them was keeping the traditions that even if the tradition went against the Bible, they would keep it. 
they would abide by the tradition rather than the Word of God. Um, several, uh, when I was uh, in my late teens or early 20s, I read a book that maybe some of you have heard about or read yourselves. It was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Some of you sound like you've read that one. So I read this book, and the book um, had a lot of good stuff in it and was very well-intentioned. And part of the argument was that since the Bible holds marriage in such high regard as this holy covenant, well then, wouldn't it be good if we didn't date at all? Wouldn't it be good if we changed our tradition to back to a courtship type of arrangement? And the argument kind of went, I hope I represent it fairly, that when you date someone, it's kind of easy to sort of give them a little bit of your heart. And then when the dating situation doesn't pan out, they're not the one you marry, well, don't you have less now to give to your spouse than you did before you dated that person? And so this sort of purity tradition sort of emerged very quickly, and it even suggested, of course, that it's best to avoid as much physical contact, not just saving, you know, keeping the marriage bed pure, but avoid as much physical contact as you can in the courtship relationship. They even um, suggested or, or, or described a couple who shared their first kiss on their wedding day. And I, there's many people, of course, who have courted and been married, and it's worked wonderful in many cultures and traditions. However, many people who quickly adopted this, this tradition, including myself, read the book and became so passionate about it that we would um, sort of look at anybody who was dating as kind of less holy, kind of less pure, especially if they held hands on that date. Because you see, we took marriage so seriously that we weren't even dating. We were waiting to find the right person to court into marriage. When we find ourselves keeping a tradition that can be so helpful for living the Christian life, and then we find ourselves judging and looking down on people who don't keep the tradition the same way we do, that might be a good warning sign for us to reassess the attitude that we have about that tradition. Maybe if, like the Pharisees here, a little, maybe if you hear someone in your life group shares with you about what percentage of their income they give to the Lord. They're asking for prayer. They're telling you about a hard time, but they say, but I'm still, even in this hard time, I'm giving this percentage to the Lord. And you hear the percentage and you go, oh, your first thought is, wow, that's not very much. They'd probably be, be impressed if they heard how much I give, and I didn't stop when I went through a hard time giving this percent. If that's your first thought in your, when you hear that, it might be a good time to reassess why it is you faithfully give that certain percent of every paycheck. Is it because you think that your generosity can somehow atone, make up for 
buy yourself into God's good graces when you know you've fallen short in so many ways? When someone in your Bible study asks you for prayer and says, can you pray for me because I'm really struggling to spend regular time with God. I want to pray every day, but I keep finding excuses and I haven't read my Bible in weeks. If your first reaction is to kind of scoff at them inside and go, <laughs> I figured that one out years ago. Every morning, every day, I pray and I do it like this. If that's your first heart reaction when someone asks you for prayer because they're struggling to spend time with God, it might be a good time to reconsider what that tradition means to us. Because there's no amount of minutes that you can sacrifice that will be a great enough sacrifice to purify your heart from sin. There's no amount of prayers, of Bible reading, of any empty, outward, perfunctory tradition in and of itself that you can ever do to cleanse the sins from your heart. And so we might then be tempted to think, well, if only they hadn't stacked up all these traditions on top of these symbols of purity. If only they just stuck with what the Old Testament required. The Old Testament did have cleanliness laws, commandments that God had given them to keep, including the washing of the hands before the priests served, but also cleanliness laws pertaining to food, foods not to eat or they'd make you unclean, things not to touch or they would defile you. So we might be tempted to think, well, if they had just stuck with the law and not put all these traditions on top, they would have been fine. And some people still have that attitude today about, about our new covenant symbols of purity. We have the baptism tank up here today, and we're so excited to baptize people just as God commanded. But this symbol of purity is often mistaken by many. And they think that the mere act of going under the water and coming up at a church with a pastor will somehow make them spiritually clean, will somehow absolve them of the shameful words they've said and deeds they've done. But, and the same attitude can be taken of communion. Hey, it's not easy, but I know I've done wrong, so I'll show up every week. And I'll take communion every time they offer it. And if I have the cracker, and if I drink the juice, my record will be absolved. But of course we know that as powerful, as wonderful, as important the symbols of purity are in the Bible, they're only symbols of something far more profound. And in and of themselves, they cleanse us from nothing. That's what becomes clear with what Jesus says next. Continuing on in verse 14, Jesus says this. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. 
After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. So earlier Jesus chided them for keeping empty traditions and thinking that would make them clean. But now he tells them that all those foods that they weren't allowed to eat in the Old Covenant, that would defile them and make them ceremonially unclean, says right there, he declares them all clean. How can he do that? If it was in the Scripture, how can he change it? It's supposed to be eternal. Unless, of course, the clean laws in the Old Testament could never make you clean in and of themselves. Unless, of course, the clean laws in the Old Testament always were a symbol of the need for inner cleansing. They were there as a daily reminder that just as if you touched the wrong thing as you would by accident, or if you ate the wrong thing, or if you, uh, if you didn't observe a, a certain cleanliness law, well, then you were defiled. Well, that's what sin does to your heart. When you sin, as we all do, you're defiled. And you require an inner, inward cleansing, not of the body. It was a picture of the cleansing you need of the heart. And so again, we have to ask, what can do away, can wash clean the shame and the sin in the human heart? And the answer is the same answer that it's always been. The grace and forgiveness that comes from God. When we confess our sins with a contrite heart and say, Lord, I know I've done wrong. Please forgive me. We know that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than sufficient to cleanse us from our sins. There's a passage I heard Tim Keller preach about um, where he describes from another Old Testament passage the meaning of these cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. And it's, it comes from a vision that Zechariah has of the high priest. It's from Zechariah chapter 3. And see if you can hear how the cleanliness laws become a little more clear in their deeper meaning here. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. He, then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sins, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him. Listen, high priest Joshua, 
you and your associates seated before you, who are men, symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So Zechariah has a vision of the high priest Joshua standing before the Lord, and he's covered in filthy garments, it says. That's, there's only one day that the high priest would be standing before the very presence of God, and that would be on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, when the high priest would go into the holiest part of the temple. And it says, though, he was covered in, in filth. He's wearing filthy garments. The Hebrew says that it's, it's excrement. It's human filth on him as he stands before the Lord. And here's why that would have been shocking to Zechariah when he sees this. Because the week leading up to the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the holiest, the holiest place of the temple where God and the Ark of the Covenant was, he would live the entire week in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an apartment in the temple. We know this from historical records at this, from this time. And he would live in this apartment for a week so he wouldn't even touch anyone who had touched anything that was ceremonially unclean. And all week long, he would practice for the day of atonement. And then the night before, he would stay up through the night. He wasn't allowed to sleep. And the other priests would take shifts to come in and to read Scripture to him and to pray over him and to help him to prepare his soul for the next day. And in the morning, he would go out before the people assembled, and he would wash himself from head to toe three times in public behind a veil. Then he would put on a special outfit, not his usual high priestly outfit, but perfect white linen for this one special day. Then he would first make a sacrifice for his own sins. Then he would bathe again and change again. Then he would make a sacrifice for the sins of the priests who were helping him. Then he would bathe again and change again. And then he would, uh, they would lay hands on a, on a scapegoat and confess the sins of the people and send it out of the camp. Then he would kill a second goat and take it into the holiest place of the temple to atone for the sins of the people. And there, on that one day of the year, after all these washings and cleansings and preparations, Zechariah sees that he's covered in filth. Why? Because it was always about the heart. It was always about the sin and shame of the heart that can't be washed away through outward cleansing symbols. And what he saw on, Zach, on Joshua is what God sees when he looks at us, when he sees the sin-stained hearts and deeds that we all know we've done. And yet, instead of God smiting him, destroying him, casting him out of his presence, he gives him, takes off the filthy garments, and he gives him these new, perfect ones 
to wear. And he says, I'm going to send the branch. He says, this is all a picture of what's to come because I'm sending one called the branch who will take away the sin of this land in a single day. Not through washings and sacrifices and rituals, in a single day. And of course, we believe that that symbol to come was Jesus Christ. And we believe that in part because as we look back, we realize that the exact opposite happened to Jesus the week leading up to that day. You see, the week before Jesus' sacrifice, he also was preparing. And the night before, no one was staying up with him. His disciples were falling asleep in his greatest time of need. In the morning, or not in the morning, but later, he was not, he was not, given, uh, he was not given a um, perfumed bath, but his, his, his bath was the spit of the people around him. He wasn't given uh, clean clothes to wear. He was, he was disrobed, and he was clothed with a crown of thorns, and he was crucified on the cross. He was covered, if you will, in the excrement of all of our records and sins. And so, what purifies the human heart from our sins? We are clothed and purified in righteousness because he was clothed in our filth and our sin. There's a passage in Revelation 19 that describes us clothed in, in these white, perfect garments, these symbols of our purity before God. And we believe that that's only possible because he took our sins and paid for them on the cross and that we take his life and rise from the dead just like he did. And that eternal life begins the moment we receive that grace, gift of forgiveness and purity when we look to Christ with faith and confess with a broken heart that we need him, that we can never do enough traditions, never do enough outward empty deeds to atone for our sins, he says, forgiven, washed clean. And, and of course, we still stumble and we still struggle with sin even though we believe we've been given this new heart. But anytime we sense that we've been defiled by sin, we know that he's ready and willing to forgive us, to restore that sweet, sweet communion we have with the one we believe we are bound to for all eternity. And so that's why we love the symbol of baptism. Not because the symbol of baptism in and of itself can make a person's heart pure, but because it's a symbol of a life that's been transformed by Jesus of a heart that's confessed its sins and wrongdoing and received the only thing that can cleanse a person, the forgiveness and life-changing grace of God. And when we look at it that way, it becomes powerful, not just for the person who gets baptized, but even for the people who witness it, who are reminded of God's amazing grace and forgiveness that only comes from Him. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for including so many stories in Scripture about people who are more like us than we'd like to admit, Lord. I know when I read about the Pharisees, 
I just want to scoff at them and laugh at them, Lord. But then I, I sense you saying, not so fast. I put these stories of people's mistakes and failures and misunderstandings all throughout the Bible so that you could learn from them, so that you could walk more closely with me and have a sincere, open heart to receive my grace and love that you could never earn. And so, God, I pray that your grace and love would fill our hearts even more now, Lord, as we continue this incredible service and witness these incredible baptisms. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.